can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, we got it right. <clears throat> We've been going through a study in the book of Matthew. <clears throat> and last week we looked at a sermon called uh, The Perfect Storm. And it dealt with the storm that Jesus hushed in <clears throat> Matthew 8 verses 22 to 27. And uh, last week we talked uh, about a couple things, but uh, this week we're going to talk about a portion of Scripture in Matthew 8, verses 28 to 34, and I've titled the message, Solve Our Problems, But Save Our Pigs. And uh, you're going to get it once we get into the text. It's kind of a weird title, but I saw this and I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. So um, anyway, kind of a fun title. But just in way of, of review and introduction to the, the text that's before us this morning, last week we talked that, that God's plan is to redeem not only men, not only mankind, but also the earth and the entire, entire universe, for that matter, from the curse. Remember, when God created the earth, he put man as sovereign ruler over the earth, and then man fell to sin, and so that that kingship, that ownership of man was transferred to the one who deceived him, and, and that is the prince of the power of the earth, um, Satan himself. But there's going to come a time in the plan of God that <clears throat> he is going to redeem all of what we see around us. And um, in order to do that, he had to send his son, Jesus Christ, to earth and the first time he came, he came as a savior, okay, and uh, he came and he lived a life, 30-some years, he was obedient to the Father's plan, he went to a cross, he died a horrible death, voluntarily, in place of all those uh, who have sinned, all those who had put their faith, their trust in him, and so in that act... On the third day when he rose from the grave, he was pronounced victorious over sin and death. And as a result of that, he accomplished the redemption of mankind at that point. But he didn't accomplish the redemption of the earth and the universe and everything we see around us as far as creation goes. That's going to happen when he comes a second time. The Bible says that Jesus Christ will come back. And when he comes back the second time and puts his feet on the earth, he's not going to be coming as a savior. He's going to be coming as a judge. And at that point in time, if you haven't trusted him as your Lord and Savior, it's too late. The second time he comes, he will redeem the earth. The Bible says that he'll rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And uh, Matthew here is concerned that we understand that Jesus Christ is the king of the earth, king of the universe, king of mankind. He's the rightful ruler of the world, even though that rulership is being usurped right now by the evil one, that he is the son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity. In other words, we when we look at Christ, Matthew wants us to understand that we see Jesus Christ as the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God. 
And one of the major factors in proving beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is the Messiah is to show that he had not only powers over natural diseases when he healed people, but last week we looked at he had powers over nature. That he stood in a boat with his disciples and a raging sea was around them and he literally stood up and went, hush, and everything was quiet. No waves, nothing. You could hear a pin drop. And so, he not only has power over the natural things of this earth, but he also, today we're going to find out that he has power even over the unseen forces in the supernatural world. And there is a supernatural world, beloved. And so, if Jesus Christ is going to, in fact, redeem the earth and take possession of all fallen humanity, one thing that's essential that he has to do, he has to show that he can overpower the one who holds all of creation in its control right now, known as the prince of the power of this air, Satan, and his demons. And so we find occasions when we read throughout the Gospels in the life of Christ where the writers give us examples of Jesus' ability and his power over the demonic forces. We see where he casts out demons. And he does it instantaneously. He does it authoritatively. Sometimes uttering one word and it's done. He gives clear proof of that. He has shown us that proof. There's also the power over Satan that we see. In Matthew chapter 4, when we went through there, remember he was tempted. Satan tempted him. Tempted the Lord. And the Lord was victorious. He confronted Satan with the word of God and he never gave in. But we have to understand that his power even goes beyond that. See, the primary issue here is not that Christ never gave in to Satan and his hosts. That's not the issue. It's that he causes them to give in to him. That's how powerful Christ is. Matthew has shown the, the perfection of Christ in his temptation. He never gave in. Now we see the power of Christ. He makes the demons give in to him. (laughs) So Jesus has this resistant power as well as an overcoming power, you might say. And it, it, it really demonstrates two dimensions of his ability to deal with the kingdom of darkness. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, it tells us the purpose why the Son of God was manifested. In 1 John 3.8, it says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might, what? Destroy the works of the devil. Ultimately, when Jesus establishes his kingdom, he's going to incarcerate Satan and all his demonic hosts for 2,000 years. Or for 1,000 years, that's what the Bible says to us. And at the end, he'll gather up... uh, all these unholy angels and Satan himself, and they'll be eternally tormented. They're going to be cast into the pit, the Bible says. And so when we come to the life of Christ and we see Jesus casting out demons throughout his ministry, he's giving us examples. He's giving us samples of this incredible power that he has to destroy the works of the devil that is going to come ultimately one day. 
In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, he said this, But if I, with the finger of God, cast out demons, this is Jesus speaking, no doubt the kingdom of God is upon you. See, why did he say that? Because one of the marks of the kingdom of God would be the overthrow of Satan. And so Jesus is saying here that if they saw him doing this, that they would know that the kingdom had come. The kingdom is coming, ultimately. And so Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And he re- Matthew records these works that we're going to look at today in the 8th chapter of Matthew. But also, one last thing here, just a way of introduction. There's also, the you might call it the perspective of, of men. The disciples themselves, as they're hanging around with Jesus, uh, they were aware, okay, that overthrowing Satan was not something, you know, just came easy. They were all too familiar with the powers of demonic forces. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 17, verse 19, even though the Lord had given them the power to cast out demons, it tells us that in Matthew 10, 1, they came back to the Lord and they had to admit that they couldn't get some demons to respond to them. So they understood very well the power that resides with the demonic forces. And so when Jesus came along and started to cast out demons, everywhere you look after he did this, it says the people marveled. They were blown away. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, it says they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. See, these people were blown away by the way Christ encountered the demonic forces. See, it wasn't just that he cast them out. Others may have had success in doing that if they were godly people. But it was with the ease and with the powerful authority that he did it that shocked people. It was so unnatural, some concluded, that when they saw Jesus doing this, it was just so unnatural for people just to go up and say, hey, you know, cast out or go, and, and, and the demons left. That was just such an unreal thing that some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day looked at what he was doing and they said, hey, you know what? <laughs> this isn't for real. This is a shell game. As a matter of fact, we think Jesus is in cohorts with Satan himself. That's why he's doing this so easily. See, he's just building himself up for a following. Matter of fact, in Luke eleven fifteen, the Pharisees accused Jesus, saying, He casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons. In other words, this is a sham. This isn't the real thing. The man is the devil himself, is what they were saying. And their conclusion was saying, nobody could get this kind of cooperation from the demonic forces, ever. And so for him to be able to do that, he's got to kind of be in on it somehow. Matthew shows us samples of Christ's power. And he shows it over and over again. And he wants to convince us that Christ is the one who can reverse the curse and set up the kingdom. He was able to heal sickness. He was able to control nature. He dealt with sin. He overruled death. And he conquered demons. Now, Matthew records nine miracles in chapters 8 and 9. And they're in little... Triplets, they're three miracles apiece. And they show us the many facets of Christ's incredible power 
We've already looked at some of those. But today, in Matthew 8, verses 28 to 34, I want us to focus on three words. Three things. Possession, power, and perspective. The possession of demons, the power of Christ, and the perspective of the people. So let's read the text before us, Matthew 28, or Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, to the end of the chapter. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before time, before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Credible account of Christ's power. Now remember, it says when they approached the other side here, they, they just gotten done with this huge storm out on the sea. And they'd come from Capernaum. And they left Capernaum after a busy day. The Sabbath day was over. A day of healing. Incredible things were happening. They were all tired. Storm on the, the water was just incredible. Jesus was sleeping. The disciples felt in fear of their life, so they went to wake up their leader. And Jesus stood up and went, Hush! And the sea was like glass. At this time, it was probably about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, dawn. Sun comes up early. And these little flotilla of boats, Jesus in the main boat with his disciples or his other ones probably following him, they arrived at the other shore. And immediately... The Bible says they're confronted with an incredible situation. Just an incredible situation. Let's look at the first thing here this morning. The possession by demons in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 31. They crossed the sea. They encountered a storm. The Lord calmed it. And now they arrive to the other side. And immediately, it says they were received. There's a reception by demons. It says in verse 28, when they had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, or Gadarenes. Depends what translation you have. Well, what is this place? This causes some problem, because if you read the different gospel accounts, they all say something different. Here it says the, the Gadarenes or the, the, the Gerasenes. Uh, Mark's account says the Gerasenes. Luke's account says the, the Gergesenes. Well, what is this? And I think basically to show you what we're talking about here, on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee was a little village named Gergesa, or Kersa as it, here it is to known today. It's about six miles from Capernaum. 
And basically, the topography of that city fits the story here. There's steep banks going right into the sea, so it kind of makes sense that the, the pigs would, would jump off these cliffs. But there's another town called Gadara. And go ahead and put the, 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 thing, the, the maps up there. You see Gadara down there on the bottom, okay? And then there's... Uh, the one up there, and then it's probably the one all the way up by the Sea of Galilee. And you say, well, how do you resolve these discrepancies? Well, it's probably the different gospel accounts. They're not necessarily referring to a specific place because the name Gadara or the Gadarenes could not only refer to the city name, but also to the region around it that encompassed the village of Gergesa. So... All these things kind of work out if you just do a, you know, a little simple study on it. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a place that's right next to the sea. So that's the place. Will you look at the possession here with me? It says there were met, they met him two demon, two possessed with demons. All right. When they arrived on the shore, all of a sudden they're, they're encountered with two individuals who are possessed with demons. Now, if you flip over to Mark and Luke and you read the accounts over there, you say, well, this it only mentions one over there. Is this a discrepancy? What's going on here? No, there was probably two, but they probably focused on the leader of the group. There was obviously one demoniac that was probably more pronounced than the other. And so when Mark and Luke look at the situation, they just say, yeah, I ran into this demon-possessed guy, and he was just, there was another one with them, but they don't say that, because they don't say there was only one. Mark and Luke don't say that. They just introduce us to one. So once again, it's, it's not a contradiction or anything like that. It's just different people telling the story differently. But it's obvious that there was two, because that's what Matthew says here. One being the main figure and uh, the, the one whom the dialogue in, in Mark 5 was carried on with. Now, when you start to talk about this kind of stuff, it seems that somehow, sometimes we get off on little weird tangents. When we talk about demon possession, when we talk about demons, what are we talking about? What does it mean to be possessed with demons? Some people say there's a difference between being obsessed, being oppressed, being possessed. You hear all this stuff, people write volumes on this stuff. Spiritual warfare books. But I'm here to tell you, I've looked through the Bible. The Bible makes no distinction whatsoever. It doesn't break it down that way. To be demonized simply means to be under the control of demons. That's what it means. We can't go any further because the Bible doesn't say anything more about it. Now, we know that, by, that, that, that demons can do a lot of things to people. Uh, they can tempt people to sin by getting into their minds. That's why it's important that we, we be careful what we put in front of our eyes and in our ears. Can, they can put before us luring thoughts. Demons can bring about disease. Remember, it was Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 who said that he had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. I don't know what that was. 
but it was something that was caused by a demonic force. The Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 tells us there's such a thing as the doctrines of demons. And the doctrines of demons seek to pervert the truth and they lead people away in idolatry and error. And you see that in most of the world religions today. They worship vain idols. That's all promoted. That's all got its source in one place. Satan and his demonic force. But you can break it down into three areas if you think about it. Three areas of affliction in the New Testament. There's a little chart there. You can put it up there. First of all, physical affliction. All right, which disables the body. And you read accounts of dumbness, blindness, deformity, epilepsy, things like that. And that doesn't mean that everybody who has those things are demon-possessed. I'm not saying that. But they can, demons can cause and affect these physical disablements in people's body. Secondly, mental affliction. People suffering from deranged minds, such as insanity, masochism, murder, all those things are given examples of demon possession, someone who is under the influence of demons in the Bible. And then you have the spiritual affliction, which drives people to sinful practice. Starts with the corruption of the truth through false, through false religions, maybe occult practices, which leads to immorality. So you have the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. Those are different ways that demons can affect people. Now, the, the one definition that I gave you here is basically a kind of a broad definition, but I don't know how else to define it. Demon possession is a condition in which one or more demons inhabits the body of a human being with the purpose of controlling it. That's what we see in Scripture. There may be different degrees. There may be different manifestations of possession. But however it works out, they're controlling that body. This word for demon possession in the Greek, it's used 12 times in the New Testament. So it's clear that the Lord and the New Testament writers acknowledge that demon possession is a real thing. It's not just something that you see on TV where people's heads are spinning around and their stuff's coming out of their mouth. That's what Satan would have you to believe. In fact, the early church possessed what is called the gift of miracles or powers or dunamis in 1 Corinthians 12.10. And it included the ability to cast out demons. They were given this special gift of miracles in the early church because the church was just being established and people needed to know who are these guys with what's you know they're starting this brand new place there's no other church like it there's nothing else on the map they started a church followers of jesus christ jesus christ gave them special abilities special powers so that when they could do certain things people would look and go wow they must be of god And you can get into a big debate, is that gift still around today or not? And that, that's not where we're going to go this morning. But it's important to understand that it was a very real thing. And it's a very real thing even today in our society. It's interesting because when you read about demonic activity in the Bible, such as possession, things like that, none of these things happen within city walls, like the city of Jerusalem. They're always out in these rural places. 
You know, this little town next to the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it's just kind of a little place. It's not a big city. And, you know, sometimes when we have missionaries come over from Africa or New Guinea or wherever, Brazil, wherever they're from, and they come and they could stand up here and you could ask them, you know, have you ever dealt with demon possession? And they would say, oh, yeah, I've seen it. And they'll tell you stories that just blow our minds. And we wonder, boy, is this a real thing? Or are they just making these stories up? It is a very real thing. But for some reason, it's uncommon in a sophisticated society. It's just uncommon. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. It seems that demon possession seems much more likely to take place in a less sophisticated society. A lot of times it's because of the pagan influence pagan religion influence. There's a lot of fear of the evil gods and, and Satan capitalizes on that. And he exerts, they, the demons can exert their influence using that pagan religion. But I think another reason is kind of just common sense. In our society, when someone's acting demon-possessed, what do we do with them? We lock them up, don't we? Put them in a mental place. That guy's crazy. That's what happens. I'm sure that there's a lot of people who are diagnosed as mentally ill in our society, and really they're demon-possessed. But we don't go there. And it seems to, to each situation, when a demon is in possession of someone that demon's personality totally overrides the person's personality. In Mark chapter 5, verse 9, the demon was asked, when Jesus asked the demoniac, what's your name? The response was, my name is Legion, for we are many. And you've seen movies, you've seen accounts, you've seen special documentaries where people who are possessed, and when they talk, it doesn't sound anything like them. That is a very real thing. Because the demon is taking over that person's ability to speak, to do anything. They're totally in possession of that person. And all of a sudden, they have a brand new personality. It's sad because the same solution that we're going to see was for the demoniacs here in Matthew 8. It's the same solution today. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the power over demons. And that's where we have to turn people. Well, look at what it says in verse 28. Look at their residence. Where, where did these demon-possessed men dwell? It says they came out of the tombs. Now, you stop and think about it. We're talking about a Jewish land here, okay? I mean, this story just kind of is interesting because there's a lot of things that, that Jewish people will not do. One is be defiled by a dead body. That's just totally off limits for them. And they have a whole cleansing process they have to go through if they even go near a dead body. And you think about these poor souls who were probably most likely Jewish, that these demons possessed, and they were living in the tombs. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, graveyards are not, you know, my top ten of places to visit. 
you know, once in a while I'll drive up here on 92 and go up and kind of just meander through those on my motorcycle as I'm going over to the coast just because it's so beautiful, the, the view. But I don't like to be in a graveyard. I don't know of anybody that, oh yeah, I can't wait. Are we going to the graveyard? And so these poor souls were living in the tombs. And if you look at the geography over there on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's cliffs. And a lot of times, even today, they've hewn out tombs, graves in the cliffs. So they were using these tombs as their residence. And it says here that they were irrational. The way I know that is because in Luke chapter 8, verse 27, it says they wore no clothes. They wore no clothes at all. Now, some people today believe that, oh, that's a freeing thing, you know. Well, let me tell you. The only time that the Bible speaks of people wearing no clothes is when they were raving maniacs and they had no sense at all. All right? So, you know, don't buy into the thing, well, what does that hurt, you know? We're going to go and belong to the sunshine nudist colony or whatever. Well, you know, that has no place in our society. They were irrational. And they were exceedingly angry. They were, it said they're exceedingly fierce, these, these demoniacs. It means they were violent. In Mark chapter 5, it says that people tried to bind them with chains. And these demoniacs broke their chains with tremendous strength. And Mark also says that they were crying and cutting themselves with stones. They were crying. It doesn't mean that they were, you know, oh, poor me. No, they were shrieking is the idea. They were screaming, inarticulate sounds. And they were cutting themselves with stones. So here, I mean, visualize the scene. Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat. And all of a sudden, they're face to face with these stark naked men who are possessed. They're hacking themselves with stones. They're shrieking. And they're racing down this hillside with incredible strength. That's why it says there at the end of Matthew 28, it says, so that no one could pass that way. (laughs) Go figure. I'm not going down a road by a graveyard where there's demon-possessed guys there. I'd stay away from there. You know, I'll, I'll go the long way around. And that's what people did. No one dared go down that road because as soon as they did, these demoniacs would run out of the tombs and scream down the, the, the hillside at them. Look at verse 29 because here we see that these, these demons who are possessing these individuals actually recognize two things about Jesus. It says, and behold, they cried out, what have we to do with you, Jesus, thou son of God? In other words, the demons who controlled these two men asked a question. They looked at Jesus and they said, why are you bothering us? <laughs> why are you here? In fact, in Mark chapter 5, verse 6, it tells us that when they saw Jesus, turn over there, because you're probably not going to believe this. Matthew, or Mark 5, verse 6. See, we got a long, a lot of wrong ideas about demons and demon possession and all that stuff. 
verse 6, Mark 5, it says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, and remember, he's giving account of one demon-possessed man. There's two there, but he's just focusing on this one guy. It, what's it say in verse 6? He ran and worshipped him. The demon-possessed man ran and worshipped Jesus. That word describes a person who reverences a superior being, such as a king or a supernatural being. And he's totally prostrate, on the ground, on his knees, worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's demon-possessed. Wow. It's incredible that demons should bow before Jesus, but they did. They knew exactly who he was. That's why they did it. As fallen angels, they participated in Satan's rebellion, you remember, against God. Demons are very well acquainted with God and with his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. They don't need any help in their Christology. They're a lot better off probably than some of the cults today who don't believe that Jesus is God. The demons got it right. They know exactly who Jesus is. And so they, they knew that Jesus was against them. They knew that Jesus was their judge. So first of all, they looked at his deity. They realized who he was. Secondly, they recognized his authority. They said, are you come here to torment us before the time? They're looking at Jesus saying, hey, wait a minute. We know the time frame. We know the plan. We know what's going to ultimately happen. Something's wrong here. You're going to judge us too soon. They knew that Jesus was God, the Son of the living God, and they knew the eschatology. They knew the future events that were going to happen. They knew the plan. They knew that ultimately they're going to be damned forever. And so they're looking at Jesus saying, hey, wait a minute, we got some more business to do here. You can't do this yet. This isn't part of the plan. These demons were pre-tribulational, pre-millennial demons. They got it right. They knew that they were going to be damned forever in eternity. And yet they could not resist worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ because they knew of his ultimate power. They knew that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, they knew the truth of this verse, that at the, ta- at, the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth. And then what's it say? And things under the earth. Therefore, they bowed the knee to Christ, their judge. These demons have a lot more common sense than some people in our society today who were unwilling to bow their knee to Christ. They'd rather face the judgment of eternity Lost forever without God in utter darkness with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, that's what the future holds for someone who is outside of Christ. That's what the future holds for someone who looks at Jesus and says, Ah, good religious man, thanks but no thanks, I'm going to go my own way. Don't be deceived, beloved. Even the demons knew who Christ was. And they affirmed his deity. They affirmed his authority. 
And just by what they were talking about here before the time, somehow they, they know they've been made aware of the divine plan of God to a certain degree. And they anticipate what's going to happen. They're even way ahead of the Lord's disciples at this point. They understood exactly what the Lord came for. And when they addressed him, Jesus, you are the Son of God, they made a very important statement. See, the Son of God, it's a, it's a synonym for Messiah. It means one sent by God. The Holy One, the Anointed One. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, Verse 16, Peter answered Christ and he said, Thou art the Christ. Remember that? Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Messiah. The Son of the living God. And in that case, God the Father was revealing through Peter that the Messiah is the Son of the living God. Demons acknowledge God's authority and power. James chapter 2 verse 19 says, you believest that there's one God, that's great, you do good. But you know what? Don't forget the demons also believe and they tremble. Just because you believe, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, I believe in this, I believe in that. That does not save you. That does not save you. It says the demons believe, but they tremble. And the reason they tremble is because they know the end result of the rebellion will be utter torment forever. In Luke 4, verse 41, it says, The demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, or Messiah, the Son of God. For they knew that He was the Christ. Demons know exactly who Jesus is. They're not in the dark on this issue. Now, they make a strange request here in verse 30 and 31. These demons do. Just an odd request. It says, There was a good way off from them a herd of many swine, pigs, feeding. So the demons besought him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. See, the demons knew exactly what Jesus was going to do. Because they knew Christ was a compassionate man. He was the Son of God. He was compassionate. And when he saw these two individuals that these demons possessed, and he saw their state, they knew that he was going to have compassion on them. They knew that he was going to cast out these demonic forces out of these two guys. And so, knowing that, they made a request. It's kind of an odd one. But they wanted to inhabit a herd of 2,000 pigs. Mark's account tells us how many there were. 2,000 pigs. My brother's a pig farmer. And he doesn't have 2,000 pigs. He doesn't have that many pigs at all anymore, a couple. But there's a lot of things you you get to learn about pigs. But it's kind of an odd request. Um, and, And we don't really know. But maybe the demons desired a home. Maybe they needed a place to dwell. And they thought, well, you know what? If we request to be sent over into this herd of pigs, uh, Jesus is Jewish. I'm sure he doesn't really care for pigs. So what's he going to care? It'd be an acceptable kind of concession to him. He's going to cast us out of these human beings. (laughs) Hey, we'll go to the pigs. Send us to the pigs. Because Jesus didn't want the demons harming people. 
Most probably the demons feared that they were going to be sent to the bottomless pit. Possibly they wanted to destroy the pigs. This is what a lot of commentaries actually say. They fall right into this. They say, well, the demons wanted to possess the pigs so they could destroy the pigs so that the people would get upset and come out and kill Jesus. That's what a lot of people believe this passage is teaching. I don't believe that at all. We can only speculate. We don't know. But for whatever reasons, the demons had their plan. They always have a plan. See, that's why sometimes when we go out in life and we don't have a plan, you don't think Satan, who is just an incredible deceptor, doesn't have a plan to take you down somehow, spiritually? He's working on that plan every day. And yet I hear Christians that live their Christian life kind of like they're flipping a coin. They have no plan at all. Church, well, I'll come when I can make it. Small group, well, it fits into my agenda. You know, they have no plan at all to strengthen themselves spiritually to come up against such a host as demonic forces. And you say, well, I don't, I don't have much of that in my life. I guess I'm doing pretty good. No, you know what? You're right where Satan wants you to be. You're clueless. You're thinking all this is kind of like a fairy tale that it happened somewhere else. See, the one goal is Satan, he basically wants to make you ineffective as a Christian. And he wants, he wants to do that however he can. He wants to do that by you defaulting into sin. He wants to do that by getting you off the plan that God has for your life and onto your own plan. He wants to do that by filling up your life till it's so busy that you don't, you couldn't even squeeze God in there if you could. And then we sit back, fat, dumb, and happy, and go, "Gee, spiritual warfare. We don't, we don't have much of that going on," and we wonder why. There's no need. We're already right where Satan wants us most of the time, playing right into his plan because we have no plan. Well, the possession of these demons lead to the power of Christ in verse 32. Matthew takes our focus off these possessed men and he puts it on and solely on the power of Christ. Look at what it says in verse 32. Matthew 8, verse 32. And he said to them, go. That's it. No hocus pocus. No, nothing. Just go. That's it. Talk about incredible power. That's the method that he used. He said, go. There's, there's people today, you can go into libraries and read books on how to cast out demons and how to do this and how to do that. You have to do this with fasting. You have to do this with this. And you have to... You know what? We're so far out of our league when we come to things like that. And as far as I'm concerned, the Christian has no place going out and looking for this sort of thing. None at all. Now, if in God's divine plan, somehow you cross paths with someone who is possessed of a demon, I pray that you'll cry out to God for wisdom on how to deal with it. But don't think you getting out your cross and going, ooh, you know, 
I mean, that's, that's, that's Hollywood, folks. We're talking the real deal here. This demon worshipped Jesus. There's some stuff that happens in churches today that is just wacky. People being levitated and all, and everybody's sitting back going, oh, look at the power of God. I'm here to tell you that's not the power of God, beloved. That's the power of Satan. And he's fooled everybody into looking at that and going, oh, this is a good thing. Satan can do so much of what he wants to do. He's a masquerade. He's, he's the best at what he does. And we don't have any business looking after this and searching it out. He says there that he just said go. And the next, next verse, or next part of the verse says, and when they came out, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd ran down steeply down the bank violently and into the sea and perished in the waters. Now, some people look at that and go, oh, those poor pigs. I mean, that's where their focus is, you know. At the PETA people or something. I don't know who, who these people are, but, you know, all oh, the poor pigs. How could Jesus do this to a herd of pigs? Look, we got, we got enough pigs to go around, okay? The, the, the focus isn't the pigs. You know, I wonder sometimes if these people think of that when they're eating their ham sandwich, you know, or their, their roast beef or whatever, all these people that are against, you know, the consumption of animals. I mean, that's what animals basically are for. Somehow we've taken animals and we put them on a plane with human beings. You can kill a baby that's unborn in the womb and nothing happens to you. God forbid you should hurt an animal. You'll go to prison. Everything's mixed up in our world today. Now, just relax because I'm not saying we should be cruel to animals. Okay? I'm allergic, but I love love them just like everybody else. Just keep them away from me. But that's okay. You know, you can have your dogs and your cats and whatever else you have. That's fine. I'm not against them. But here this whole herd committed mass suicide. 2,000 pigs. And it happened like that. Think of it. They're getting out of the boat. They step on shore. All of a sudden, these maniacs are running at Jesus and his disciples. All of a sudden, they're worshiping Jesus. The disciples are probably going, whoa, what's going on here? And Jesus says, go into the swine. Up on the hill, there's a herd of swine. All of a sudden, the swine run down the hill as a herd. And, and, and pigs aren't herd animals. Okay, They're not like sheep. Okay, that's not the way they operate. And, and pigs don't really do well in water. They don't swim very well. So if you were standing there and you were looking at this herd of pigs, all of a sudden, run down a cliff, off the cliff, into the water, you would say, something happened here. This is a little weird. This is not the normal standard operating procedure for a herd of pigs. And it wasn't necessarily what he did. It was how he did it. That's what blew these people away. It wasn't the end result, the pig. That, that wasn't where the fuck. They were just like blown away that he said, go, and this actually happened. 
They knew that demons are incredibly powerful beings. And that as human beings, we can't effectively deal with that them on their supernatural level. And that's why it's so ludicrous and it just irritates me sometimes when I hear people that think that they can just, in their own cleverness, cast out demons. You know, there's a demon under every rock. Oh, you got the spirit of this. You got the spirit of that. You got the spirit of this. You got the spirit of that. It's all nonsense. Now, are, are demons active? And, and do they embrace certain activities? Definitely. They're very real. But the idea that somehow we can just overpower them is ridiculous. And just because you have a white collar around your neck and you're wearing a crucifix, that has nothing to do with it. That's Hollywood once again. Second Peter 2.11 says, Angels are greater in power and might than men. Well, what do you think demons are? Demons are fallen angels, beloved. In Psalm 103.20 it says, Angels excel in strength. If you read in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 19.35, there was one holy angel who slew 185,000 Assyrians at one time. That's a lot of people. Demons are as powerful as holy angels. We know that because in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, it says that there was a message from God that he wanted to get to, Dan- so he, to Daniel, so he sent a holy angel. And it says that the holy angel was withstood by a demon for three weeks until he brought in reinforcements, Michael, to help him get the message to Daniel. So demons are very incredibly powerful. And the only way, the only way that we can deal with this sort of supernatural demonic activity, Ephesians 6, chapter, or Ephesians 6, 10 to 11 says that we are called to be strong in the power of His might. We put on what? Our own armor? No. We put on the armor of God. I want to tell you this morning, demons have a superior intelligence. And just Ezekiel 28, you can look at that. They have a superior strength. You can see here in Mark 5, they broke chains. You can also see it in Acts 19 and Matthew 17. They have a superior power. They can do signs and wonders. You didn't know that, did you? They can do signs and wonders, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And you see all this weird stuff going in some, on some of these charismatic, crazy churches, and people go, oh, it's the power of God. No, it's not. They have a superior range across the heavens. They have a superior experience. They've been here long before we were ever even created. And they've lived throughout all the annuals of history, human history. And they know what's going to happen. They know how men think and function. And yet we as Christians go out our daily life and we think, oh, well, you know, I don't really have a plan. They have a superior nature. They're spirit beings. They're not bound by any form. They're incredible creatures. And the only one that could bruise the serpent's head, we're told, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, he will cast them into the pit in Revelation 20. But only he can deal with them here in Matthew 8. It's his power that we see on display. You see this message is sent out because... 
Jesus granted the demons their request. Why would he do that? Why would he grant the demons their request? Send us into the herd of pigs. Okay. Well, I guarantee you it wasn't for their sake, but it was for his. And why, we, we can't really say because it doesn't tell us. There's a lot of commentaries that say, well, what Jesus was doing is he was teaching those Jewish people in the area that they shouldn't be raising pigs. So he killed all their pigs. Come on. That's kind of crazy. I think the primary point of this account in Scripture is to show us that Christ has the power to cast out demons with a word. And he gave a dramatic demonstration of his ability. Now, if, if he was dealing with these demoniacs and he looked at the demons and he said, Be gone. Where would they go? Or maybe he'd say, yeah, go over into that guy's life. <laughs> All right, these guys are free, but now Jesus wouldn't do that. What was he doing here? He's setting up this stage for an incredible miracle to take place. How are you going to demonstrate that they left? these two individuals. So he said, all right, you know what? The pigs sound like a good location for you right now. So here you have this herd of 2,000 pigs peacefully in their muck and mire, enjoying life. How are you going to demonstrate that these demons left these two individuals that Jesus is dealing with? I mean, everybody heard what they said. Hey, send us to the herd of pigs. Okay, go. <laughs> Everybody's looking. All of a sudden, these pigs, remember, they're not herd mentality and they don't swim. All of a sudden, these people that are gathered there, they watch 2,000 pigs race toward a cliff, go off the edge, and dive into the water and drown. And the conclusion is, wow, something just happened here. <laughs> I've never seen pigs do that before. And then they turn around back to Jesus and these two individuals, the Bible tells us, are clothed and in their right minds having a wonderful conversation with Jesus. And all of a sudden they realize, wow, okay, these guys were the crazy people that we'd never go down the road because they'd come out and yell at us. Now they're sitting here talking with the Messiah in their right minds, clothed. That's, that's a miracle right there. Where'd the clothes come from? Interesting. Having a conversation with Christ. See, what he did was he's giving a living demonstration of the deliverance of those two men that no one would... Can you imagine if you were there and you saw this? I mean, just seeing 2,000 pigs go off a cliff into the... That would be something to write home about. But then you see the two guys who were possessed and they're in their right mind and they're clothed. And at the same time, it showed the destructive nature of demons, that they actually killed these pigs. It just shows you, it just unmasks the ultimate plan of Satan. is destruction. It's hurt. It's pain. That's his goal. He'd like us to believe that sin is fun for a moment. And it won't hurt anybody. As long as you're not hurting anybody, it's okay. 
I mean, how often do we hear this? Well, I know we're not married and, and we're having sexual relations, but, you know, it's, it's mutual. So then it's okay? You're, you're going to take the law of the Holy God and say, He's okay with that? Because it's mutual? Or what does it hurt me if I look at things that aren't honoring to God? I just do it in the privacy of my time. It's not hurting anybody. See, we need to we need to come up with a better plan on how to deal with all that Satan throws to us. The point here is that Jesus cast out these demons. And if you're concerned about the pigs, you've missed the point. He wanted to show people that he had the power to do this. Well, look at the reaction. The perspective of these people. How did they react? It says in verse 33, And they that kept them fled. Who, who are they? Those are the people that were hurting the pigs. Okay, you don't just let 2,000 pigs run wild. Okay, you've got to have somebody, a herdsman, to watch over them. It says, They that kept them fled, and they went their ways into the city. That's why I said it's a rural, rural area here. These aren't the owners of the pigs. These are just the caretakers, the, the care keepers of the pigs, the herdsmen. And they saw all these pigs that they were supposed to care for <laughs> run off a cliff, commit mass suicide. It says they fled. They flew out of there as fast as they could go. And they told everything. What's it say that happened to the pigs? Notice it doesn't say that. It says, And those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, what? Including what had happened to who? The demon-possessed men. See, they got it. The focus is on Christ freeing these two individuals. The pigs weren't the issue. And these were the caretakers of the pigs. They weren't the issues. The issue was the men who were delivered. Who knows how long these people were possessed? Who knows how many people couldn't walk down that, or for how long people couldn't walk down that road? They were inconvenienced. And with a word, Christ changes all of that. The issue was the men who were delivered from the demons. The pigs were just the proof that it actually happened. It says they told everything that was befallen those who were possessed with demons. Verse 34 says the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And you say, wow, that's great. They came out and they're going to have a big revival. It's incredible. No. Here are the guys sitting clothed in the right minds, having a conversation with the Lord. These demon-possessed men who once inconvenienced their neighborhood, their community, 
are totally clothed in their right minds, having a conversation with the Lord. The whole city comes out to look at this. And it says that when they saw him, they came and they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord, right? No. <laughs> Not what they say. They're a couple steps behind the demons, unfortunately. It says, Behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart from their borders. What'd they do? They turned to the Lord and said, Get out! Get lost! We don't want you here. And almost to a one, every commentary that you read says, well, it's because they were more concerned about their pigs than Jesus. They were focused on their material goods. I don't believe that's what the point is here. We want our pigs. How dare you do this? You look at this in all accounts. It doesn't say a word about the owners of the pigs. Not a word. Now, if I was the owner of a pig and I lost 2,000 pigs, I'd be a little ticked off. But it doesn't mention anything about these people. It says the whole city came out. And when the whole city saw him, they made contact with him. And it says, get out of here. In Mark, once again, it tells us why. Because they were afraid. They were not mad. They were not angry. They were scared to death. In Luke chapter 8, it says they were taken with great fear. See, the principle here for us to see is that when unholy men face a holy God, what happens? They experience terror. When unholy men face a holy God, they experience terror. Isaiah 6, 5, we read it this morning. Faced with a holy God, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. In other words, I've just lost it. Isaiah, the best man of the land, basically was pronouncing a curse on himself when he saw God because his unholiness was exposed. In Luke 5.8, when Peter saw Christ in the majesty of His power, he said, depart from me for what? I am a sinful man, O Lord. In Mark chapter 4, we looked at this last week, when the severe storm came, it says the disciples were fearful. And then when Jesus calmed the storm, and they realized who was in the boat with them, one who has power over nature must be God, it says that they feared exceedingly. They were more afraid of the calm than they were of the storm because they knew that God was in their boat. See, the supernatural power of Jesus caused these townspeople to panic because they observed one who not only controlled the demons, but also took the souls of two men and gave them back to them. Incredible display of power. Now, I'd be fair to say that when supernatural stuff happens around us, we kind of feel uncomfortable with that. We don't like that. 
See, here, instead of falling at his feet and worshiping, they said, go away. I don't want you. People today think that, you know, they're witnessing their unbelieving friends and they think, if I could just show them a miracle, if God would just do a miracle, somehow then they would believe. No, they wouldn't. Think of all the miracles that Jesus did and these people still didn't believe. Basically, they're saying, give us back our pigs and go away. Just leave us alone. We can handle the pigs. We can't handle you. We can't handle God. Just a side note, this is the first time that it's ever recorded where there's an instance of open opposition to the Messiah. The first time. And from there, it just goes downhill. It just goes downhill. They were exposed for who they were. doesn't end there. In Mark 5.19, gives us a parallel account. And it says this, the demon-possessed men wanted to go with Jesus. The story continues in Mark. They wanted to travel with Jesus. They were excited. They, they, the, the people who were demon-possessed, they were delivered from that. Now they wanted, they were free of their bondage. They wanted to go serve with the Lord. And here's what the Lord says in Mark 5.19. He says, no, go home with your friends. He wouldn't let them come. He says, tell them what the great things the Lord has done for you and have had a, a compassion on you. And he departed. The demoniac departed and began, the one who was delivered, and began to publish in Decapolis. That was his territory. What the great things Christ has done. Those hating people who wanted Jesus out of their country forever. They didn't even break the compassion of Christ. Christ still had compassion on them. As a matter of fact, you know what? If I was Christ, I would have said, yeah, get in the boat. Come on, we're leaving these people. But Christ didn't do that. He said, no, you know what? I'm going to leave you here because you're a living testimony of my power. You're a living testimony of my forgiveness and my grace. I want you to stay here as a missionary amongst these people. How wonderful. The grace of God, the grace of Christ extends even to those who don't want it sometimes. Pray you consider that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we don't know much more about this story other than what the Bible tells us. We don't know what this testimony, this man who was freed from these demons had on these people. We thank you for this record that shows that Christ has the power over Satan. Lord, I pray that we would take that to the bank. Lord, when sin is active in our life, it's not the work of God, it's the work of Satan. And Lord, we need to turn to you and we need to trust you for your power to deliver us from the power of sin. Someday you're going to come and you're going to create a new heaven and a new earth. You're going to give us glorified bodies. There's not going to be any more sickness or tears or sorrow or crying or pain or death. We're going to see the majesty of Christ beyond question in person at that time. The demons in the story gave testimony that, Jesus, you are the Son of God, that you are the coming judge, and that you will damn to the pit the ungodly. That's the testimony of demons, and they know. I pray this morning that you would make us wise to know as well beyond a doubt That Christ is who he said he is. He's the son of God. He's the judge. But that we may know what the demons can never know. 
for they can never be saved. That we would know your saving grace that you give abundantly. It's interesting in that story, he didn't tell the man to tell the demons to give testimony to them. They're beyond redemption. But he told the man to go tell his friends. Because the plan of salvation extends to us as his creation. May we hear this message of Christ. May we come to know him in the glory of his kingdom. Lord, we pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.